Please open in your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians in chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Apostle Paul writes, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it. Amen. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Once again, O Lord, we come to thee, needy, needy sinners who are redeemed, who are adopted as thy children. We are saints in thee and through thee and in thy Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask for the means of grace, that is, the word preached, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to lift us up out of the slow of despond, to gather about us our wits and our wisdom, that it comes from thee, Lord, that we would move forward in thy will and in thy purposes, for Christ's sake and unto thy glory, O Lord. Lord, we know that we can profit nothing without Thee. We know that this word preached or read without the illumination of Thy Holy Spirit will do us no good. So therefore, we do submit to Thee. We ask of Thee to have that help, that guidance, that illumination from Thy Holy Spirit, O Lord. Lord, we thank Thee, we praise Thee, commit this time unto Thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear congregation, we are continuing on in the Heidelberg Catechism. We are in Lord's Day 13. In Lord's Day 12, we saw the questions 31 and 32. 31, why is he called Christ that is anointed? Because he was ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher. And it was fully revealed to us, secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. So in that question, they, go, they went through the threefold office of Christ. The mediatorial office of Christ, that he's prophet, priest, and king. Then in the question number 32... They asked, but why art thou called a Christian? Wherein they described our union with Christ, that we are Christians in the same way that Christ is Christ. It's a title. We are given that title because we are in Christ. We are part of his body. He has redeemed us. And so setting the stage now, they return again to kind of an annex or an addition to the offices of Christ in talking about Christ's person here in Lord's Day 13. So let us read Lord's Day 13. Question 33. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God, 
since we are also the children of God? Answer, because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. But we are children adopted of God by grace for his sake. Question 34. Wherefore callest thou him our Lord? Answer, because he hath redeemed us, both soul and body, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus hath made us his own property. In these questions before us, in this Lord's Day number 13, let us notice three things. We'll first look at the natural sonship of Christ. So number one, Christ's natural sonship. Secondly, Christ's derived government. Christ's derived government. And thirdly, we will make some practical inferences on our daily life from these. First, Christ's natural sonship. Our catechism states that, quote, Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. The scriptures, as we know, declare that God has many creatures which he calls sons or children. We see that throughout the scriptures. The angels are so called. The, the angels are so called the sons of God. All of humanity is so called the sons of God in that same sense. Indeed, all believers are called the sons of God and the children of God by nature of their recreation in Christ being born again. So there's many places in Scripture and many different groups of people in Scripture who are called sons or children of God. Angels, all of humanity, any human, by nature of their creation as well as the angels, and so too all Christians are also called sons of God in their recreation, being born again. They are then adopted as sons of God. But all of these are children of God by derivation. I mean, they derive that title, son of God, from something. And they are sons of God in time. They are creatures. They have been created. So in time, and by nature of them being created, they are called sons of God. That's the angels and all of humanity and Christians are called sons of God in that manner. So as titles. For these... The term sons of God or children of God implies no essential relationship to God in any way. But we see in our catechism and in the scriptures that Christ's sonship is of an entirely different nature. Our catechism expands upon this in two particulars. Christ's sonship is first eternal. Christ's sonship is eternal. So the sonship of Jesus Christ, unlike all other sonships, is eternal. Eternal. It has no starting point, but rather has been from eternity past. Christ Jesus is the Son of God eternally. So Christ's filial, or his relationship to God as a son, his filial relation to the Father has no starting point. It is, like God himself, eternal. As the creed says, Christ was eternally begotten of his Father. So Jesus Christ is the Son of God in an excellent, peculiar, natural, and therefore an eternal relation. Far different than simply angels being called the sons of God, or humans being called the sons of God, or even believers being called the sons of God. Christ's sonship is peculiar, and one of the peculiarities of it is that it is eternal. So in support of this truth, our catechism gives us a few proof texts, one of which is John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is difficult, nay, impossible, in my opinion, to discover a more clear and glorious statement of the truth of Christ's eternal sonship. In the beginning, in the beginning, God already was. In the beginning, God already was. And this word, here talked about, was with God. And in fact, this word was God, the text says. The apostle, a few verses later, makes explicit the filial relation of this eternal word being a distinct person of the Godhead who was, quote, made flesh and dwelt among us, whose glory was, quote, the glory of as of the only begotten of the Father, who declares to man the glory which no man hath seen at any time, that glory of God which no man hath seen at any time. So this word that was with God and was God was also in the bosom of the Father, we read. And now this word has declared the invisible God unto men. He is the declaration, the revelation of God unto men. This word is the eternal creator, as we also see in that same chapter, of all things. This word is himself God, yet he is titled the only begotten Son. Therefore, Christ's Sonship is eternal. Why? For he is God. For he is God. And God is eternal. Christ's Sonship, we see, is peculiar because it's eternal. He has always been the Son of his Father. He has always been the Son of his Father. And as such, he has always existed. He has always existed as the son of his father. Such is the glory of Jesus Christ that he is the only begotten son of God. The only begotten son of God. So too is God's great love for us demonstrated in this. In this. We know God loves us as Christians. We know God loves us as Christians because Jesus is the only begotten son of God. Why do we say that? Why do we say that we can know God loves us simply because we know that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God? In what way do we mean this? The Apostle Paul places this truth that God, that Jesus is God's Son, that Christ is God's Son, before us as a great evidence of God's love for us when he says that God sent, quote, his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Then directly after that, a couple of verses later, he says that he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? It's Romans 8, 3, and then 32. So we cannot be separated from the love of God, Paul argues in that same chapter. We cannot be separated from God's love towards us. And the way we know this is because he sent his own son, the text says. And he spared his own son not for us. Thus, we see that Jesus was God's Son, his only begotten Son, before he was given for us and for our sins. Our Lord Jesus himself, as you recall, prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17, saying, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was, in eternity. So Jesus in that prayer, himself recognizes his own eternal glory, which he had with God in the beginning. And he prays on behalf of his people on those very grounds, that he is the eternal son of his father, who shared in that same glory. The catechism also makes appeal 
to the first chapter of Hebrews where we read, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So this verse, this passage that we see in Hebrews, then confirms the teaching of John that we saw in the first chapter of John's gospel. Jesus Christ is the word of God, the full expression of the invisible God. That's John's point. God's own son, who is the demonstration of God's heart to us, in that though he has all power, though Christ has all power, Though he is the creator of all things, even, as we see in both of these passages, and though he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet he was made flesh and dwelt among us and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men for the sole purpose of what? Of becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Thus, as our passage here says, purging our sins in the sacrificing of himself for us upon the cross. That's what the eternal Son of God did. In this, we see the love of God to us sinners. Romans 5.8 But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this Christ that we here read of, this word that we here read of, that was with God and was God, through whom all things were created, is God's own Son. Here, the force of the reasoning, or that which drives the arrow of God's love deepest into our hearts, depends wholly upon this argument that Paul and John are making. Namely, it depends wholly upon the peculiar sonship of Christ as the Son of God. It would have no real weight behind it if Christ, who had been given for us and for our sins, and were the son of, was simply the Son of God by some figurative or official role. Some manner that was simply figurative or official, like all humans are or like the angels are. It is the love of the Father for his own Son, for his own eternal Son, his own only begotten Son from all eternity. It is this love of the Father which proves his great and unspeakable love to us. Namely, in sending that same eternal Son under the likeness of sinful humanity for our very redemption. That is who was sent for us. That is who came for us. And that is what drives, as I said, the arrow of God's love deepest into our heart. Just as Abraham's love to God was demonstrated in the offering up of his only begotten son, as the uh, Greek Old Testament translation says, so too is God's love shown in giving his only begotten son from all eternity for us. Just as Abraham offered up Isaac, his only begotten son, so too does God offer up his only begotten son for us. And what did the angel say to Abraham? That now I know that thou lovest God. Now we know that God loves us because he has sent his own son, his own darling, to die for us. Secondly, his sonship is peculiar in that it is also natural. It's eternal, and then it's also natural. 
Christ's sonship is natural, which means that Christ was not adopted as God's son at some point, as early heretics taught, nor is he God's son by appointment, by office, or creation. Rather, Christ is God's own son by nature, by nature. As the creed also says, Christ was begotten, not made. Begotten, not made. Eternally God. Eternally begotten. Eternally the Son. Christ is the Son of God in the fullest sense of the word in which someone could even be the Son of His Father. He is the Son of His Father. And everything that means in English, that's what it means. He really was the Son of His Father. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, not his adopted son, not his appointed son, not his official son, but his only begotten son to be the propitiation of the sins of his people. As in all natural cases, the son who is born is of the same nature with his begetter, with his father. So is the begotten son of God of the same essence as his divine father, of the same essence as his divine father. God calls some of his creatures, who as to some qualities that they have, resemble him in a limited and finite form, his children. As we talked about, angels, uh, human beings, Christians. But Christ, he calls his only begotten son. His only begotten son. His only son in his own nature. Of no one else could this have been said, because no one else is this in truth. No one else is God's only begotten Son. And if we continue reading in Hebrews chapter 1, we see that Christ Jesus, quote, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Hebrews 1, 4 and 5. By this day, we must understand it as the common Hebrew idiom means in eternity. In eternity I have begotten thee. There, then we read after this in verse 8 that unto this eternal son he said thy throne O God is forever and ever. Thy throne O God is forever and ever. So through divine inspiration God himself interprets the meaning of his own language for us here. That's what makes Hebrews so valuable. God himself interprets the meaning of his own language and calls his only begotten son God, as truly God as he himself is God. Thus, Christ's sonship is natural. We must remember, though, to avoid the error of some in thinking that Jesus Christ became the son of God at his physical birth of the Virgin Mary. That's a common misconception I think a lot of people have, and in fact, entire heresies have been built on that notion, where you say, how is Jesus the Son of God? Well, he was born of the Virgin Mary. A lot of people have that misconception. Jesus did not become the Son of God when he was incarnate. But some people have that view, that Jesus became the Son of God at his physical birth from the Virgin Mary, as though he was eternally the second person of the triune God. He was that but not the Son of God as such until his incarnation. It is true, we have to admit, that he was not the Son of God in human form until that point. He was not Jesus until that point. 
that he did not have two natures, both a divine and a human one, within his one person until that point. But he was always, always the eternal begotten Son of God, even prior to his incarnation. Upon scriptural testimony, it is certainly clear that Christ was the only begotten Son of God before his incarnation. For as we read, the Father, as we read earlier, the Father sent his only begotten Son into the world. And when we read that, Christ must therefore have existed before he was sent and existed as the only begotten Son of God prior to his being sent. So he was always the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. George Bethune wrote in his commentary upon this Lord's Day, quote, Proofs of Christ's preexistence might be multiplied here, but these are enough to show that the title only begotten was his, independently of his incarnation, and antecedently to it. But in what state did he preexist? Certainly not as a man, for he became man by his birth of the Virgin Mary, not as an angel, for it is proved that he had by inheritance a more excellent name than they. What else could the only begotten Son of God be but God? Not merely divine, but truly, essentially God, as truly and essentially of the same nature as God the Father, as the Son of a man is as truly and essentially a man, not God in some lower sense than the Father, for it is only in his minority that a son is less than his Father, and as a deity is infinite, the Son of God must, like God the Father, be infinite, and therefore they are equal. As we read in the Apostle Paul, Christ thought it not robbery to be equal with God. From this we can ask, how could he be God and not equal with God? And if he was equal with God, he must therefore be infinite. And if infinite, he must therefore be equal with the Father who is himself infinite. Correct? The begotten is of the same nature as the begetter. The Son of God is of the same nature as God the Father. However, I do wish to urge this on us all at this point, that we take much care, we beware, we be careful in pushing logic and definitions too far or resting too much upon them. We have to remember this, dear congregation. Human language is limited and can only express things in a human way. Nor can human language be understood in any other way than in a human way. Than in a human way. Which human way has many pitfalls and limitations? So we must be careful to remember that the scriptures are also writing that is in human language, given by inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, through human penmen, and written in human language. And it speaks of God and the relations between the persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, using language framed by men for men, in man's language, to express the relations of the divine Godhead. To sum up, it is not therefore possible with such language to make known the infinite truths of God's own being. So we must be aware of that. We must be careful of that. That we can push logic and the bare meaning of words too far. Because they will and inevitably will fall short. We cannot describe the infinite God and all of his truths perfectly or even fully adequately in many occasions. 
one such occasion is trying to explain the Trinity, the natures of Christ, etc., a topic that we are on tonight. Hence, we must keep in mind that the terms Father, Son, begotten, or begotten, or generation, as the Latin synonym is used, are to be understood, are to be understood in a sense as distinct from that which they mean when applied to men. I mean, they can't be a one-for-one when we're talking about God, the Godhead, the Trinity, the two natures and the one person of Christ, the three persons of the divine Godhead. They cannot be a one-for-one because they simply cannot be. The divine nature is infinitely above the human nature, is it not? And it may be true, I think it is true, that theologians have speculated upon these terms and derived logical deductions of these terms to an unwarranted and unhelpful and sometimes harmful degree, such as the snare of human language. As John Owen talks about in volume one of his works, talking about Christology, that he said many great things came from the early heresies and the creeds and the councils, specifically the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Athanasian Creed, But one of the things they said was so bad about them, and one of the things that came out that was bad about it, is that it then brought in human language into the description of God, at which point even Orthodox people began arguing amongst each other what these terms actually even meant. So we must remember not to push it too far. However, that being said, we can be certain from the testimony of Scripture that these terms, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, begotten, do indeed imply a real, natural, essential, though to us incomprehensible, relation between the first and second persons of the Godhead. They do. And that they thus imply their equal divinity. That God the Son is God, God the Father is God, God the Holy Spirit is God. Hence also, we must believe that as the nature of God is unchangeable, the relation between the Father and the Son must have existed from all eternity. Meaning they must have always been in relation to one another as Father and as Son throughout all eternity. Because God is unchangeable. The Father did not cause the Son to be. Nor did the Son come into being at a later point in time than his Father as happens with natural fathers and sons. But whatever the inexpressible relationship which these words imply in in human language, it has to be and will be co-eternal with the existence of God. That they do communicate something. Our second point, Christ's derived government. So we looked at his his natural and eternal Sonship, and also now his derived government. Because Christ is, as the second person of the triune God, the eternal Son of God, and possesses the office of mediator between God and man that was given to him by his Father, that he accepted in the Pactum Salutis, or as the undertaker, that's what the mediator means, an undertaker for them on their behalf and from from God for their redemption, he therefore has been given government over the objects of his redemption. So he was, as the second person of the triune God, the eternal Son of God, possessing this mediatorial office, then completing that mediatorial office, 
also then has government over the objects of that meditorial office, namely the objects of his redemption, who were given to him as his own inheritance. What does all that mean? Well, it means he owns his people. He owns his people, having redeemed them. Christ's government is derived. What do I mean by that? Christ, as that office is a distinct office, Christ, it's a title, Christ's government is derived, meaning it comes to him from without, is given to him, in that it is awarded to him for his work of salvation. It is given to him as an inheritance, as a reward of his work. As we read in Paul, Philippians 2, 7-11, through 11, Christ made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. It's always really important to look at conjunctions in the Apostle Paul's letters. Wherefore, for this reason, Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there you see his government is derivative. It's given to him. He wins it. Now let's go through what that catechism answer states it tells us a few things about this government christ has over us and why he has this government over us first he redeemed us and i want to emphasize this holistically christ redeemed us holistically we are taught to ask wherefore callest thou him our lord that's what the catechism tells us to ask the first part of our answer must begin with the fact that he hath redeemed us both soul and body from all our sins, both soul and body. So holistically, to redeem is to purchase. That's what it means, to pay a price, specifically to purchase out a slave or a prisoner, to set at liberty, pay the price. This means that Christ, in the true meaning of the word, has purchased us, purchased us. He owns us. He owns us. We are his property. We are his in no less way than any possession of ours, which we have purchased with our own money, is ours. He purchased us. He now owns us. Paul tells us that we are not our own, you recall. 1 Corinthians 6.20, he says, We are not our own, for we were bought with a price. Bought with a price. Therefore, we belong to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has purchased us. But Christ has purchased us both in soul and in body. Both soul and body. He not only secured our eternal felicity, our eternal bless in heaven, but purchased us to, or, or simply purchased us to be his fellow co-inhabitants in heaven. But he also purchased us as we are here in this world. That's why, as Christians, we are still sitting here in this room and haven't been sucked up to heaven. He is our owner, our Lord, both in the life that is to come and in the life which we now live here in the flesh. He owns us. We are not only saved from the guilt and penalty of sin, purchased out of it, 
but also from the power of sin now in our own lives that we live right now. We are purchased away from the power of sin. We are not redeemed from the penalty of sin hereafter so that we might willfully and freely live in the power of sin now. That's not holistic. He purchased us, redeemed us, body and soul. He has purchased us, the whole man, all of us, body and soul. He is as much the Lord and master of the choices we make in our body as he is over our eternal dwelling. As Calvinists, we believe the Bible's teaching that he has predestinated us unto everlasting life. That he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we might be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us. That's what we believe. That's what the Bible says. But not only our salvation did he purchase, but also us living here now. Not just when we live there with him in the new heavens and the new earth, but as we live here now. This is why Paul tells us that as to the former manner of our lives that we had before we were Christians, we are dead. We are dead, and that now our life, both body and soul, is hid with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3. This is also why he can say that for him, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And why he is also able to say in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. But Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why he can say this. He understood it. Paul understood that he was purchased by Christ, that Christ owned him. The old life, which he lived according to his own sinful desires, Paul understands, is dead and gone. All that remains in Paul's understanding, and rightfully so. All that remains is Christ and Christ's will. What Christ would have him to do. This is why, in the passage which our catechism alludes to, Paul can say, Ye are not your own, for ye were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Which things are God's? Both of them. 1 Corinthians 6.20 we continue on thinking about this government and how Christ obtained it, we see that he purchased us, he redeemed us with his own blood, both the Bible and our catechism state. Our catechism points us to the words of the apostle Peter, who writes in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, your vain lifestyle, received by tradition from your fathers, but, he says, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. <clears throat> the precious blood of Christ. See here the great love of Jesus for us. The great love of Jesus for us. I think it's good for a Christian to think often about the love of Jesus. And not just theoretically the love of Jesus, but that Jesus loves you. It's not a trope. It's not empty. It's not overused. It's underused to say Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Here's the great love of Jesus for us. That we were redeemed. We were purchased 
not with worldly money, nor with traditions of Judaism, nor with the blood of animals, nor even with a human sacrifice, the blood of a mere human, but with his own blood, his own blood. God gave his own son to shed his own blood for us. Hence also from this, we see the great security, dear believer, the great security of this great payment. What, what do you think is a greater, of greater value than the blood of Jesus Christ? Nothing, I tell you, is of greater value than Christ's blood. Nor does God honor anything so much as Christ's blood. Nothing. Our salvation is secure because it was purchased with the greatest and most valuable price, Christ's own blood. John MacArthur, in a rare moment of senility or perhaps a moment of theological tongue-twistedness, once stated that we can be saved without the blood of Jesus, that it's the sacrifice of Jesus, what, what, what simply only what the Father did theologically on the cross that saves us, that we can be saved without the blood of Jesus. Maybe he was having a bad day at that time when he said that. I'm not sure. But nonetheless, our Bible does not agree with him. And so we shall discard this great expositor's opinion. If we do not have the blood of Jesus, dear believer, if we do not have the blood of Jesus as our payment for our redemption, then we have no hope of salvation. The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. Without it, we have no hope of salvation. Even one drop of Jesus' precious blood could save a multitude of elect worlds if needed. For us who believe, having seen that the price which purchased our salvation, purchased our redemption, was precious, namely the precious blood of God himself, having come to hold the being. Once we see that, that the price was precious, we now come to hold the being who purchased us as likewise precious. As likewise precious. Second Peter 2.7, which no version but the King James reads this way. Second Peter 2.7 says this, that unto you therefore which believe, he, Christ, the cornerstone, is precious. Precious. That is a universal truth for all Christians. Though each Christian may differ in degree as to how often they walk in and experience this realization of the preciousness of Jesus Christ to them, yet all of them uniformly do hold Christ to be precious. How could we not, dear congregation? How could we not? How could we not hold him to be precious, who has brought us near to God freely by grace through faith. As Paul says in another place, Hebrews 9.12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. 
Christ demonstrated his own love toward us who believe in pouring out his blood for us. He became a curse for us. He became sin on our behalf that we might be free from the curse of the law and that we would be made the very righteousness of God himself. Think of it this way. If a man were to come up to any of you, offer to purchase you whatever car you want, no matter how expensive it is. Say he purchased you a very expensive car with his hard-earned money. We would no doubt be grateful to him and would no doubt be very careful to use this vehicle wisely, would we not? But if we knew that the man had shed his own blood and given his own life that we might have possession of this car, words can scarcely declare with what tenderness we would hold the man. Even though it's just for a car, we know that he gave his life for it. He shed his blood for it, that we might have it. We would hold him in great tenderness, and we would hold, we would be very careful that we would treat this car with great tenderness, with great care, great respect, because it had become our own treasure, knowing that it was purchased with this man's life. But dear congregation, here in this doctrine, in this truth of the scriptures, we have something far greater. Our very bodies... And our very souls have been redeemed from the punishment which we had earned by our own hateful sins, by the precious blood of the eternal and only begotten Son of God. That's what we have. How do you use this blood, dear Christian? How do you use it? What is your daily treatment and care for this blood? What is your regard and tenderness? For this blood? Do you consider it to be precious? Next, we see that we were delivered from the power of Satan. The power of Satan. As before, we were Christ's, as before, we were Christ's property. Before we were saved, we were dead in our own trespasses and sins and were children of disobedience who, in time past, walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We see that in Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. We saw that before we were Christ's. We were of that. We were of the prince of the power of the air. We were dead in sins and transgressions. We were the subjects and children of Satan. That's what that verse means. We were the subjects and children of Satan. We were subject to his beckoning. When he called, we came. We were of one heart with him and the objects of our desire. Namely, the cravings of the flesh, the disrespecting of God. But in our redemption by the precious blood of Christ, we have been made in both body and soul co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ, the adopted sons of God, and Christ's brethren with him and in him. Moreover, we have been made Christ's subjects his own property, as the catechism puts it, we are no longer ruled by Satan as Christians. No longer ruled by Satan, but by Christ. See, we must be ruled by someone. He is our rightful Lord and Savior. He is our Savior, and thus, derivatively, as his reward, he is our Lord. That's where his government comes from. He won that government by winning our redemption. Thus far for the second point. Third point, some practical uh, inferences 
practical inferences. All doctrine, all doctrine, if it be true and biblical, must have some sort of practical effect on our life. If that is true, which it is, surely this great doctrine of Christ's eternal sonship and lordship over us should have some practical effect on our life. There was a lot of logical, philosophical terminology, essence, relation, status. But what does this all boil down to in our practical life? A few things I think we can take away. First, filial trust in God as his adopted sons rooted in Christ alone. That's the first thing. Filial trust in God as his adopted sons. Our catechism points us to a particular practical passage. Quote, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together, Romans eight fifteen through 17. And again, in Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, they appeal. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. In light of our adoption, the apostle exhorts us to what? A spirit of prayer. A spirit of prayer. A spirit that trusts that the Holy Spirit of our adoption prays with and for us. That it rests in that. That's the kind of spirit we were given. The spirit of adoption. One that rests in Christ. Rests knowing that we have the Holy Spirit as the down payment of our salvation. And that Holy Spirit prays with and for us. He also exhorts us to rest in the love of God toward us as believers. To rest in it. That we sinful beings have been predestinated in Christ to be holy and without blame. That's a good thing to rest in. When your heart is disquieted, when your mind is filled with remembrance of your many sins, when you feel your wickedness, when you feel that you can never truly desire God as other people desire God, that you are far from Him, we must rest in the love of God, knowing that he predestinated us to be blameless, spotless before him, without blame, such as Song of Solomon 4.7 says, Thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. That's how God views us. I was reading yesterday about a woman who was very convicted during a sermon. And the illustration that the preacher gave that convicted her so much and helped her actually come to salvation was that he gave an illustration of people running off a, running next to a cliff, slipping, falling off, and they're grabbing onto some shrubbery, and that's all they're hanging on to. And down below them is the drop. And up above, where other people are standing, they're saying, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on for your life. Just keep holding on. Trust in the shrub. But down below was Jesus saying, let go, let go, let go, and I shall catch thee. When we hold on to anything in our life to justify us before God, 
to give us a value before God, to make us close to God, to get us prepared to come to God. We've missed the entire point. Preparationism, which was popular in American Puritanism, tells you to hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait till you're good enough, then come to Christ. Wait till you've prepared your heart enough and seen if you're sincere in your repentance. Seen if you're sincere in your desire for God. Be always questioning your sincerity. Be always questioning your love for God. Hold on. Whereas Jesus says, let go. Let go. I alone can be thy salvation. That's the filial trust we should have as adopted children of God. Such a wondrous doctrine encourages us to live to the glory of Christ, to glorify him in all things, who so loved us and adopted us as his own sons. So this filial trust, which becomes our own possession, dear believers, by our adoption in Christ, causes us to come to God in childlike faith, making known all of our needs, feelings, fears, desires, wants, anxieties, and delights to our Heavenly Father. It causes us to rest securely in Him, knowing that we are His children, and He is our Father, and that we are blameless before Him, and He views us only in love. Another practical thing this doctrine teaches us is the filial duties to God, our Father, under Christ our Lord. So as children, adopted, we have childlike duties. We have filial duties because Christ is also our Lord. A right understanding of these doctrines also causes us to know our duties as adopted children of God. So the eternal Son of God, the only begotten Son of His love, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from our sins, has laid claim upon us. We owe our childlike obedience then, therefore. If you look at the context of 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13, Peter writes and he says, Wherefore, again, wherefore, because of this reason, for this reason, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, he writes, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Then it goes into, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver as gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's the context. He's laying out duties. He's laying out duties. Peter annexes duty to grace, which is our only logical, our only reasonable service, our only reasonable filial response. He says, as obedient children, those who know what guilt ye have, who now have come to know what grace has given you in Christ, being redeemed from your sins with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, Peter then says, Be ye therefore as obedient children of your heavenly Father, holy as he is holy. Holy as he is holy. So the knowledge of our guilt, and this is the whole premise of the Heidelberg, remember? The knowledge of our guilt and of God's grace and giving 
his son, Jesus Christ, for our sins, results in our gratitude-originated filial obedience. It results in that. It results in our obeying God as his children out of gratitude, thankfulness, and hearts of love. In our other passage, Paul again clearly connects our redemption with our duty. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So in all things we are doing, dear believers, let us ask ourselves, how does this action, how does this attitude, how does this duty honor my redemption with the precious blood of Jesus Christ that I have? This will keep us from many many sins. Lastly, heavenly mindedness as inheritors of a better country. Understanding this doctrine rightly will teach us where we should have our minds. Lastly, let us learn that a proper understanding of this doctrine, the doctrine of Christ's eternal sonship and his blood-bought lordship over us, leads us to be heavenly minded. Namely, setting our affections not on things of this life, but things of our life to come. Which life has begun even now? Even now. Think often upon the fact that we Christians desire a better country that is and heavenly. Paul writes in Hebrews, Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called our God, for he hath prepared for us a city. Hebrews eleven sixteen. Christ has gone ahead of us prepare us a place and we shall go to be with him that's the truth that we hold to therefore we have to place no hope in the pleasures of this life nor in the systems of this life such as we're experiencing right now dear congregation if our minds are set only on our temporal good we will care an enormous amount about the political situation in our country. We will obsess over it. We live in this country, as I have said. But it is not our true country, the Bible says. We look for that which is to come. This will keep us from despair, dear congregation, in any political climate, under any persecution, in any personal affliction, bearing any cross, and in any blessing we are in. That alone. As we've said many times, we want to see revival, or we want to see this country change, have better morals, better ethics, more prosperity. Well and good. The only way that can happen is with true revival. And the only way that can happen, true revival that is, is with heavenly-minded Christians being heavenly-minded Christians, being so heavenly-minded that we do much earthly good. When we understand this, again, this will cause us and enable us to endure any political climate, persecution, or affliction, or even any blessing. Paul said, Philippians 4, 11-13, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to, ba- how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. 
I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. You must therefore remember the words of Paul in Colossians 3. He says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. This doctrine is our great hope. It's the strength of our souls. And therefore, we can ask, what is thy only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before thee. We thank thee once again for this time for the opportunity to study thy word, to study and give consideration to the doctrines of thy word. Lord Jesus, we thank thee that thou, though thou wert and art eternal, though thou art the everlasting God, the eternal Son of thy Father, thou didst come for us to make us also co-heirs and sons of thy Father with thee. We ask for help to live this life to thy glory, to walk in accordance with thy word and thy law and thy will, to set our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our affections on things above, to redeem the time and waste no time, but live before a watching and wrathful world for thy glory. In Jesus' name, amen.